The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Well, um, as we continue in our worship together, um, I'll be uh, reading our scripture for us, but before I do... um, as we've been kind of unpacking our uh, new series on the Upper Room Discourse. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples in his final uh, evening and final hours uh, before he would head to the cross. You know, we've kind of looked at a few passages and we're in the second chapter now of that. It reminds me, uh, this one of when I was younger, I don't know if you had one of these moments, um, I was in a store and I remember I got, uh, it was a grocery store, and we were kind of going up and down the aisles. I was really young, uh, man, probably like, I don't know, five, four or five, six years old, getting kind of distracted with something on a shelf and, and, and kind of looking and, and um, you know, they have those like toy things every now and then with like little clips on them. And you just kind of like, man, why do they have those there? Well, for people like me, and, uh, and like you. You know, you just kind of turn, you're going to get distracted, you're looking at it, and you're holding it. Well, I kind of, I, I, I turn after I've kind of, kind of gone through the, the litany of toys there, and, and there's no one on my aisle. My, my mom is nowhere to be found. And I have that moment of, uh, what's going on? Where's going on? And so I kind of turn, and, and I look down the, the one aisle, there's, she's not there, I kind of look down the long corridor this way. She's not there. And eventually, I just kind of like make my way to the front. And, and the little checker at the front kind of like calls and says, hey, will someone come to the front? Their little boy is not with them. And my mom I, somehow and I got separated in that moment. It's just that panicking moment of, oh, I'm, I'm, by, I'm alone. I'm by myself. I'm separated. You know, as I got older, I realized that that's not just a small little feeling, right? I realized that when uh, I learned in sixth grade, when my parents were getting a divorce, uh, that that feeling would become a lot more pronounced. I'd hold that a lot. I realized in other ways as I got older, I'd I'd feel that panicky separation feeling of I'm I'm all alone in this. Where, where, Where is anyone? Some of you have encountered that. Probably all of you have, if you're willing to admit it. Could be somebody you've lost in your life. It could be somebody you've lost to cancer. It could be a, a friend that you once had that the relationship is completely obliterated. It could be the way that you just have felt just landing in a new area, a new spot, a new city. You just get that panic, that anxiety. You know, for the last couple chapters, we've looked at Jesus talking to his disciples. And when he does in in chapter 13, we looked at how he predicts that someone in that room is going to betray him. And soon after that, then Peter is, his denial is predicted. Jesus predicts that. And and laced through the conversation, Jesus continues to say, I'm, leave, I'm going to leave you. I'm going somewhere. And the beginning of this passage I'm going to read in a second begins with Jesus saying, let not your hearts be troubled. 
Because the upper room discourse is a moment where in the Gospels, there's the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. This is John, where he slows way down and takes a moment that all the Gospel writers touch on, but you get to really feel the moment. You feel the moment of the disciples experiencing the fact that Jesus is, is going to leave them. And the fact that their hearts are troubled because they've not only heard betrayal, heard denial, but they keep hearing him say he's going to be separated from them. And the mood in the room is low. It is anxious, even panicky. And they have no idea. Even the questions that they begin to ask him is, Jesus, where are you going? What are you doing? The upper room discourse and why we're looking at it is so important because it's not just Jesus in his final moments teaching his 12 disciples in that room. It's Jesus teaching them and then you even see later in the discourse the pronouns begin to change because he's not just speaking about them, he's speaking about us. If you would be here, and I don't know if everyone here would say they are, but if you would be here and say, I'm a follower of Jesus, if you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, this discourse is going to lay that out for you. So here from this passage in chapter 14, we're looking at 14 verses 1 through 11. How does Jesus encourage their troubled hearts? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, I am you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. I want us to look at two things that Jesus encourages his disciples with in their troubled hearts, and it should be for ours. One is of our future, and one is of our Father. Two simple things. There's a lot going on in this passage, but these two things is what we're gonna really see Jesus highlight, our future and our Father. You know, as he begins and, and he calls out their hearts, <laughs> Jesus kindly says, let not your hearts be troubled. It was a 
pattern of not just troubled in a moment, but he could see that there's a consistency of their hearts hurting. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. And then he begins for the next several verses to talk about in my father's house, there are many rooms. You know, when he begins saying my father's house, there are a couple translations of that. But they would have understood, especially in their time, and even in Hellenistic thinking, that the house described here was really speaking of heaven. It's speaking of heaven. Now, there are moments in the New Testament where this is spoken of. You can see that the house is talked about. Now, sometimes it's referred to the temple, but here Jesus is really speaking of house, meaning more of like a mansion or of a dwelling place, something larger than that. And it was for them to understand that one of the questions that they have that we would have when they talk about Jesus leaving them is, what happens to us here? If he's going, can we go? What's the question? Is there really a heaven? That's what they're asking. Is heaven real? (laughs) And if so, how do I get there? It's kind of a basic thing. I know that's one of the things you're like, okay, we're in church, pastor's talking about heaven you may not think about it as much as as it is. A reality of our hearts, a, a desire for us to have that. A destination, a longing, a place to go. See, in the Jewish mindset, a house was something that was really important for them. A, a place to be. It, it began long in the Old Testament, if even the beginning of the Old Testament. A, a house is a place of belonging, Right? And it wasn't necessarily they were thinking of a house like our house on, you know, Harpeth River Drive or our house on Garrett Drive or wherever that is, where do you live? It's not that particular house, but it's a place that they can be and belong. From the beginning of the Bible, the Garden of Eden is set up in that way. The garden itself is a place where they are to belong and be. And they know that because they're also there in relationship to God. Heaven is the thing they long for. And when sin enters the picture in the Old Testament and they're cast out, there's always this longing to go back. It's longing to find again a place that is considered home. And you see this repetition of home coming into place, not just of one thing or again a building, but a place to belong where relationship with God is. When Abraham comes on the picture, you know, it comes into the scene, right? Abraham's whole desire, he's told to leave his place and he will find a home. But I don't think we realize how significant that is to leave where you have a home and, and go and wander. And God says, I will bring you to a home. It will be your place And he had to trust him in that. For Israel to wander in the desert for 40 years after they left Egypt and been rescued, to not have a place and always a promise of the promised land, but when do they get there? You see, this consistent thing. Uh, It's interesting when I talk to my friends who've either been pastors or campus ministers in destination cities, so usually coastal places or 
or cities that are really, really cool that people go to, maybe in New York or L.A. or those kind of things. How difficult it is sometimes for people to uh, grasp the concept of heaven, what's beyond. Because many people move to those cities or visit those places because they want to experience heavenish, right? It's hard often when I've talked to my friends who are pastors on some of these like vacation destination areas for people to get a concept that heaven goes beyond this and is not just this, you know, sitting on a cloud somewhere, boring, waiting for something or singing, but it's this but greater. See, that longing for us is, is in, intuitive. It's in us. We're wanting to find a place, wanting to find to rest, a place to belong, a place to be. And here's what it is interesting. Not just those things, but a place together. Notice when he says that, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So he's not just, when he says you, he's not just talking about individual you, you, you. He's talking about you. That's a place together. It's for them to be with one another. And look, there's a lot of ink spilled about this, about heaven, and about the rooms and the places. And as I was reading this, I was like, man, there's so much information. I don't have time to even process some, some of the writings from these commentators and the footnotes that are like this long and the text at the top is this long. And you know, it, it's, there's so much to this. But what is trying to be put across here isn't for us to delve into the fact that we have to understand heaven fully. But two major things. One is Jesus prepares a place for you. It is in and through Jesus that he prepares heaven for you. Period. That's a beautiful thing. Heaven is not a consolation prize for your work here, toiling and trying to, to, to make sure everything's lined up. Jesus goes to prepare a place through him because he's the son of his father's house. He goes ahead and makes it just right. And it's a place that is for you. It also means, second, that it's permanent. That if Jesus prepares it, that it can't go away. Look, there's a lot of things about heaven. We can start, you know, spinning out here and thinking all these things. I think what would cure and comfort our troubled hearts isn't that we make sure that heaven looks exactly like, but it's that, is it really a reality? And is it secure? Is it something that goes away? Is heaven just like an idea or a wish fulfillment? No, no, no. It's way better than that. It's in and through Jesus who makes that way. It is made permanent. That heaven is not secured because you do well in this life. 
It's secured because you're in relationship with Jesus. Notice, everything about this has to do with Jesus in him. The place, the house, it's, and you know the way where I am going. It all has to do with their relationship to Jesus, not to heaven. Here's what's interesting. In the Old Testament, there's a moment where God is so frustrated with the, 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 the relationship that he has with the people of Israel. They're so stiff-necked, and they're so unwilling to listen. And Moses continues to have this conversation with God about the promised land, carrying us into the promised land. And God says, hey, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna make the way for you, and here is the promised land. And it's an interesting dynamic because all of a sudden you see God setting up his relationship with his people, and Moses says something very profound. He says, God, don't, do not send us. Do not send us into this promised land without you, because if we go into the promised land without you, we are no one. What makes the promised land the promised land is God. What makes the house heaven is the Father. It is Jesus. It is that relationship. What it is is the most profound, permanent relationship that he goes ahead to prepare and what? He comes back to us to get us. He leaves and we feel that panic and we feel that fear and yet he never ever leaves us without making it secure that he is not only come once but he will come again and we will enter into that. And, and Thomas and Philip both come into this picture and, and ask the right questions at the right time. Thomas is, is a disciple that's known many of you, even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, maybe you've heard of Thomas doubting. Thomas is the one who put his hands into Jesus' wounds when he raised from the dead because he was like, dude, until I actually see Jesus' wounds and feel and touch them, I will not believe. So this is a consistent pattern with Thomas. And especially if you're here in that room and you feel that similar thing, here's the, here's the, here's the reality of what Jesus puts forward for, for him. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? How do we know the way? And here's a verse that maybe many of you have heard, but you wondered, where does this come from and what is it about? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus does something interesting, and this is a very big mark of John's gospel. John will talk about the future a lot in his gospel. He will connect it. He will say, here's the future. But different than many others, the way that John will write his gospel is not about hey, your future in these big theological terms, what he does is connect it to Jesus' relationship with the heavenly Father. So instead of just, okay, here's how you're gonna, here's how your future's gonna look, he connects it deliberately to the Father himself. And this is why the way, the truth, and the life, and then it, he could have stopped there, right? It could have been this just statement, right? That's just a huge statement that Thomas has to live. He goes, no, no one comes to the Father except through me. What does that mean? 
What does it mean to connect our future to who we are with the Father? It means that Jesus takes Thomas's question further than even what he was asking. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It means there's exclusivity in Jesus. It, exactly what it does mean. It puts us in a position to go, how do we receive heaven? How do we actually encounter God? And how do we have this secured? It's in and through Jesus. It's a difficult thing to talk about sometimes today because when we talk about exclusive claims, and this is one, Jesus is making an exclusive claim about himself. Not about something else, but about who he is, which I think is really profound. It can put us a little bit on edge to say, okay, how does, how does Christianity really exclusive in and of itself? This is not Christians saying they're exclusive. This is Jesus saying that. And here's what's different. There are a lot of interpretations about religion, right? There's a, a, a phrase called religious pluralism. Maybe you've heard this kind of language before where, you know, all religions have kind of a piece of the pie. And, and, and there's kind of two major illustrations of this. Uh, probably one is uh, where they're, uh, the blind men and the elephant, where uh, there are a bunch of, a king says, hey, I want to teach what it means for everybody to have a piece of the truth that we all kind of understand, sorry, right? So he brings a, a group of blindfolded men into a room and they begin to, you know, touch the elephant and say, describe what they touch. So they touch the tusks and the trunk and, and the legs and the, and the tail and they, all have, and they all have a part of the elephant but not the whole. And the king says, hey, you're all touching the elephant, right? Another one that's very popular and understood is, is all the paths lead up the mountain, right? That there is a mountain we all have our different paths up it. We're all reaching the top, and the top is God and heaven and the answer of what is the meaning of life. Now, if you really think about each of those, uh, they're interesting, right? But what it's saying is, it's saying no one has exclusive claim on truth, except here's the hitch in both of those. There is someone in each of those illustrations that is making an exclusive claim. It's the king and the person who can see the whole mountain. See, if we're being consistent philosophically, let's just jump there for a moment. There is no one in this world that does not make exclusive claims. We all do. We live in a world of exclusive claims. In fact, even in of those illustrations, who is the only person that can see the mountain? Well, it has to be the one who holds the exclusive claim. I can see that all paths lead up. Or it's the king. I can see that everybody has a piece of the truth, but I know that I have the whole truth. You see, you can't get out from underneath it. That's where it is. See, here's what Jesus does with this. What Jesus does is he says, just like him, he's consistent. First off, I am the way, the truth. He doesn't say, there is a way, the truth, and life. He says, I am. So he doesn't say that they have it. He says, I am. He puts it on himself. But here's what's incredible. 
he approaches it with the incredible amount of humility. See, truth in what Jesus is describing about himself here is not that it's discovered. Truth isn't discovered, it's revealed. See, this whole passage about he and the Father, Philip says, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus says, have I not been with you so long and you still not know me? I remember being at at, at campus when I was a campus minister ages ago and uh, with students that were talking to one another and, and, and there was, it was funny because I was sitting down and eating lunch and, um, or finishing up and, and they were standing. We were talking about coming to RUF or coming to a campus ministry and, and these two, um, there were three girls that were standing there talking. Like, oh yeah, we'll go to this and oh yeah, we should all go. And then one of the girls says, yeah, oh yeah, I'd love to go. I'm not a Christian. And th- you would have thought that they were like, wait, What? And they've spent all this time together and it was almost like they've been hanging out forever and this person says this and they were like, wait, what, you're not, I didn't, what? And I got to witness the most fun, awkward moment (laughs) because they thought they knew everything about each other and yet they didn't, why? Because the only way you can know truth, real depth about someone is unless they reveal it to you. Jesus is saying to his disciples, do you not know me? I'm not hiding. It's not discovered. It's not something like, oh, you figured it out. It's revealed. The truth is revealed. This is the difference between Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. Christ offers truth and it's approachable with humility and it's with certainty because it's revealed by him. It's in and through him. I am not the source of truth. He is. And so this radically changes the way that we can have our hearts that are so troubled often with the basis of our doubts, which is fine. We can have a million questions, but here I want to encourage you. The answers to your questions are not the basis of your faith. They help you, but they can't be the basis. They can't be the focus. They cannot be the revelation of it. It is in Jesus. And he offers life with certainty in in every other way. Look, every religion provides a remedy for the practitioner to get over their sin. The difference of Christianity is that It's not up to the practitioner. It's up to the one who is the life. This is why he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It's not up to you and I as practitioners to manage and to obliterate our sin. We can only handle our sin in and through this one who's revealed that to us, in and through that father, and through Jesus and his father. This is the difference why Jesus said when he died on the cross, it is finished. He did not say like some other philosophies or ideas or religions, strive without ceasing, continue to work forward. He said, it is finished. What troubles your heart and mind is the fact that we can't get out from underneath our sin. So how is heaven a reality? 
How is change a possibility? It can only be in and through that of the relationship with Jesus and to the Father. When he says, show us the Father, it is enough for us. Have I not been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me, seen, uh, me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? We need to understand what Jesus is saying here is so incredibly profound that his relationship to God is different than ours and has to be. His heavenly father, his ministry is about his relationship to the father. And what his ministry is about is bringing us into that relationship. When his ministry begins, this is such an incredible moment. He gets baptized and the spirit of God descends down on him like a dove. And the voice from heaven comes to him and says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Do you realize what's happening in that moment? That Jesus is receiving and, and we're hearing what is God's relationship to his son? He is well put. There's not a moment in Jesus' life in his ministry where he felt like, man, I'm not good enough with God. There's not a moment where he looked into the stands or called his father and was hoping to get approval. He had it. Every moment, every second, his father was pleased with him. And there's only one moment in all of history, space, and time where we see that that pleasure changes and it is so that his pleasure may be put on us. That was at the cross. Look, this table here is the perfect picture of what's going on between our future and our Father. Verse three says this, and if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. This table shows us a number of things. One is that he has come. And that the full weight and pleasure of Jesus' relationship to his heavenly father is now ours to have. That his whole ministry was to give us that. So that now, because Jesus was so united with his father, so close to him, that if you see Jesus, you see the father. If you see those traits in him, you see the father. Those are now yours. Because if we're in Jesus, we have the Father's pleasure. This is what tr calms a troubled heart. This is what gets to the places that you and I can't reach. We can't forgive our own sin enough. We can't take the shame of what we see about ourselves and cast it far enough away. We can only navigate and manage it so much that we can keep it at bay or maybe numb it with something. But what can actually transform it? It's the one who has come to take it. The body and blood of Jesus is the tangible picture of God actually, in reality, dealing with that sin, dealing with what we can't. 
And he had to go. Jesus had to come and go and separate so that we might never be separated. That's what they didn't realize in that moment in that upper room. They were like, why does he have to separate us? All the panic, all the anxiety. Do you know what can calm our troubled and anxious hearts? Is to know because Jesus allowed himself to be separated on the cross that we might never be. And guess what he says? Everything, I mean, I say this every, every Sunday when I fence the table. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. If he has come once and he is there now, guess what he's doing? Preparing a place for you right now that's permanent. And you can taste it. You can see it. You can smell it. He will come again and we will go with him to that place together. And we will never feel that anxiety, never that separation, never that fear. Your hearts won't be troubled. They will be so full of what we long for and know of being in complete full connection and relationship with God and everyone else. That's what this is for. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together.